Well, in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, we read of a time when Moses sent spies out. He sent out these spies because they were, he had his people and they were going to be going into this new land. And he wanted to know how do our people stack up against their people. He wanted to know specifically if his adversaries were strong or weak. Well, when the spies returned from their spying, their report was unsettling, to say the least. Um, Here is a portion of what they said. This comes from their actual report that's been handed down to us. Book of Numbers, 13, 7th verse 28. They said this, the spies said this. They said, the people who dwell in this land are strong. We're not able to stand up against these people for they're stronger than we are. All the people we saw are of great height. We seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Here's the tie into real life. I'm coaching soccer this year. Many of you know this, coaching my daughter Andrea's soccer team. And early in the season, we did a little spying on the other teams. Wanted to see what we were going to be up against as the season went on. And the green team had me concerned. They had me really concerned. Had me feeling a lot like the spies from Numbers 13. And I was not looking forward to that game. Sure enough, we went head-to-head. And our scrappy little mostly fifth graders came up against these green Amazons that were mostly sixth graders. And they looked like they were a foot taller, maybe two feet taller. They were taking shots on our net from the next county. It was crazy. We teach our girls to be aggressive, but our little fifth graders would run up and bounce off like a super ball off concrete. I had to walk Jessie off the field when a shot connected with her face. Kate came limping off after a cleated shoe came crashing down on her foot. And I spent most of the first half kind of doing this, you know, as did a lot of the parents, I think, on the, the sidelines. Until, until I remembered something very, very important. And there's a place to write this down in your notes. It's important to clarify the wins. Can I get an amen on this? It is important to clarify wins. Now, do I believe that scores matter? Sometimes they do. Scores matter when they matter, right? If I'm going up against Sean Fox in the Twin Cities 5K, the score matters, right? The score matters. If this were the Copa America, shout out to our soccer folks, the score would matter. But this game against the green team, this was NSSA U12 recreational, recreational soccer. And our club has defined three specific wins. Here they are. Teach basic skills. Introduce children to team play. And provide fun for all skill levels. Now, as a coach, I come under the authority of my club. And these are their goals. These are their wins. And in the midst of what appeared to be a crushing defeat, we had wins to celebrate in every one of these categories. Alyssa was our poster girl for learning basic skills. Because Alyssa's our, our rookie goaltender. And she was out there. I was so proud of her. So proud of Alyssa. She was using her hands instead of her feet. That's a win. That's a win. She kept her body facing towards the ball. That's a win. And that girl was aggressive. And she was fearless, which goalies need to be. Lainey. Lainey was our poster girl for team play. And I was so proud of her, too. Because Lainey's about three foot two. She weighs less than our Yorkie. She's just a little, 
little kid. And she, she was cheering, though. She was cheering like this was the Copa America. She was going crazy. She was playing out there. She had this defensive play that could have made ESPN highlights. I was so proud of her. And as far as the fun goes, no one out funds our Panthers. So proud of our girls. They got this little um, cheer, this P-A-N-T-H-E-R-S, boom, snap, clap, boom, and their hands are flying around, and they do this thing that is physically impossible for male coaches to, uh, to do. Ends with a dab. It's just, it's awesome. They were having a blast out there, nailing the fun. One of the other things they also emphasize in our rec soccer is that we're one club, one club. And so one of the things we're able to do in rec soccer is we can sincerely go to the other team and really be happy for them. At least that's what we tell ourselves, right? But we were able to go to these green giants and go, wow, you guys are absolutely amazing. Wish you wouldn't have shot that one right at Jesse's face, but, you know, we, we love it. So at the end of the day, one of the reminders I needed to remember is that our struggle was not against their flesh and blood. Our struggle was against those unseen forces that can rob us of true victory, which I'm reminding myself of because this week we have to go up against the red team twice, and they look better than the green team. So I'm telling myself these things, and it's true. We want to rightly define the wins because if we wrongly define the wins, our girls and our coaches are going to go home really discouraged, really discouraged, right, right? Our girls, but when we rightly define the wins, he's one of our assistant coaches, we rightly define the wins, they can go home with their heads held high their heads held high. I think everyone who's been here for the series knows where I'm going with this. As important as the responsibility is as a coach to define the wins correctly, how much more so is that for fathers? And that's what this series is about, fathers. Two weeks ago, we launched a series called Heavenly Fathers, and one of the ways that God reveals himself to us is as our father. And there's a place to write this in your notes. One of the wins of this series is to remind ourselves Christianity rises and falls not only on a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Christianity also rises and falls on a right relationship with his Father and ours who art in heaven. In week one of the series, we looked at the Jewish framework for fatherhood because that's the framework in which God gave this analogy. And if a Jewish father was a good Jewish father, God wanted to say, I'm like that. And then in week two, Brandon did a great job of talking about a father's role as husband. The more that we as fathers love our wives, the more that the world can understand. This is, this is, what, this is what it's supposed to be between Christ and his church. It's supposed to be like that. Well, this week, I want to discuss the important role that a father can play in the life of their son or their daughter. And this matters. Several years ago, I think we showed you some stats, and we took you through a whole bunch of them. Here's just some stats that are just just sobering. Take a look at this. Fathers make a difference. 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centers are from fatherless homes. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of school. And this next one should send chills down your spine. The absence of a biological father increases a daughter's vulnerability to rape and sexual abuse by how much? Nine And we could do this all day with the stats. Dads make a difference. When an earthly father, listen to this, when an earthly father doesn't come under the authority of his heavenly father, when an earthly father begins defining wins that are right in his own eyes, results can be devastating. Well, 
naturally, my mind goes to this then. Well, what about those of us who don't have an earthly father in the mix or a father who is actively engaged? You know, I lost my dad to cancer uh, when I was in college. But I've been blessed. One of the ways that God steps in is through other godly men. And I've been blessed to have a mentor in my life. His name's Roger Twito, and he's been there for me. I can't pick up the phone and call my dad, but a couple weeks ago, uh, Roger knew I was going through some stuff, and so he called me. Man, and he was able to pour wisdom and encouragement into my life like he's been doing for decades. And even though he's a pastor in another state, he's going to be dropping by the house um, in, a, in a couple weeks, and I'm really looking forward to that so we can spend some time together. So that's one of the ways that God can work. He works, and I'm looking around. I know how many of you have been mentors to younger men. Way to go. And that's one of the ways God works. But also, he also directly works too, directly works. I got this email from a, from a divorced mother of two, and she gave me permission to share this during the series. She wrote this. She said, as I listened to your message today, I was thinking back many years when I was newly divorced and sad, when I heard about the important role of fathers in a family. Mothers always want the best for their children, and I can be that, but I can't be the dad. But look at what she does. For the last 20 years, I've daily prayed the Lord as the head of our household. It, was, it has given me such peace as a single parent. We're under the umbrella of protection by the Lord. And I love this last sentence. There is no broken family in the body of Christ. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. God cares about kids. God cares about kids, and he wants to place a father or a father figure, or he wants to be that father for kids of all ages. So if you are a father or a mother or an auntie or a grandparent or anybody who cares about kids, one of the most important things that we can do, the thing that we're going to talk about today, is defining the win. Defining the win. Because there's so many things we can point them to, right? Young people of all ages, we can point them so many directions. There's so many things that we would love to see in their lives. We can point them this direction and this direction and this direction and this direction. Of all of those things, what's the win? What's the win? And wouldn't it be great if we could just open up our Bible and say, God, what's the win? What's the win for, for kids? May I present to you that we can. And there's at least several places where what we're going to look at today is said, and here's one of them. It's in Ephesians 6, which is right after, picking up right where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, starting there, and we'll go through verse 4. I want to let you know, too, that as you're picking up your free water bottle, if you don't have a Bible at home today, we'd love for you to take one home free. There's a stack of them at both the entrances and exits there, too, because there's so much practical, practical wisdom that we can have. All right, so let's take a look at this. Um, this is... Uh, Oh, did, before, before we get to there, I want you to write one more thing. I, did I forget this the first service? I did. Here's one of the blanks. Um, write this down. Our Heavenly Father clarifies the wind. See, now you know some language that we didn't tell the 915. Huh? Not bad, right? No, actually, it is bad, but good for you. Okay, so our Heavenly Father clarifies the wind. Here it is in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then here's the win. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up 
in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, before we press into that, I want to I talk a little bit about the context because it's, it's interesting. I've, I've read that passage a zillion times before, but I never made this connection, and that is what Paul is doing to really set up the strength of what he's saying. There's three sections that come back to back to back, and this falls in the middle. And what Paul does, it's, just, it's brilliant through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He does what great communicators will do, and that's to try to get everyone's head nodding in the same direction before sending this curveball their way. And so let me give you a little framework. We'll talk about that, and then we'll get into this win here. Paul was writing in a time where fathers, they ruled the, the household. Fathers were in charge of pretty much everything in the house. Well, not pretty much everything in the house. They, they ruled over their wives, they ruled over their kids, and they ruled over the household servants. That's how it was in that time, in that place. And Paul was about to do something, like I mentioned, that the world's most effective communicators do, and that was to get all of those heads of the household nodding in the same direction and then shoot them a curveball that they may not have seen coming. So right before this section, in Ephesians 5, the passage that Brandon took us through last week, in Ephesians 5, God gets all of the fathers nodding their heads in agreement when he says this. He says, hey, wives, you honor your husbands. All the fathers are like, that's right, Paul. That's right. You tell them. You honor your husband. Preach it, Brother Paul. But then he does this. After getting them all saying, this guy, he's the best speaker ever. I mean, just this guy's great. Then he says this. He says, oh, and husbands, love your wives. Lay your life down for your wife like Christ laid down his wife, life for the church. And they're all like, oh, okay. And then in the section after the one that we read in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, right after that, Paul says, Hey, household servants, obey the master of your house with fear and with trembling and with a sincere heart. Don't just work hard when they're looking, but when they're not looking. Work for them the way that you would work for Christ. And again, all the fathers are like, Paul, I'm forwarding this to everybody I know because this is truth. Of course, work for me like you work for Christ. And then Paul says, what? He says, oh, heads of household, fathers, do the same thing for your servants that I'm asking them to do for you. Stop your threatening because his master and yours is the same. It's our father in heaven. And they're all like, oh. And then the passage that we just read falls between these two and it follows that same pattern. He says, hey, kids, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother. And the parents are like, amen. Do you realize how much better life would be if, right? And in that time and in that place, every churched father would be saying yes. And every unchurched father would say yes because that was their paradigm. Jewish fathers had their holy scriptures, and the holy scriptures were firm on this. It prescribed the death sentence for cursing, for striking your parents, or your father in particular. And in the Greco-Roman world that they were a part of, it was even worse. I looked up some, some background on this passage. It said that in Greek and Roman society, an infant was only accepted as a person when dad said so. So before the father would recognize their own child, the child was not a human. 
and they could be disposed of or abandoned or killed with no legal protection. Well, in each of these three roles that men, that fathers played in society, Paul started with something they agreed with, and then he threw them a curveball that they didn't see coming because in each case, there was a mutual responsibility. Mutual responsibility. So he would say, wives, honor your husbands. And then he would say, husbands, love your wives. Household servants, honor your masters. And masters, you do the same. Children, honor your father and mothers. And fathers, here's the win. Bring them up in the training, in the instruction of the Lord. That's the responsibility. That's the win. Let's bring it back up on the screens, Ephesians 6.4. This is rendered now in the NIV. It's, it was, came to us in Greek, so English, we do the best we can to try to say, what, what does it say in English? Here's how the NIV renders it. We were looking before at a translation called the ESV. It says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, if you're a parent, you know it's pretty easy to exasperate your kids. All you have to do is ask them, come down for supper. <laughs> Am I speaking truth yesterday? Huh? Come on, I'm like, really? I'm exasperating you with that. I have the gift of exasperation, I think, in our family. It just comes naturally. Just tell a joke, tell a joke she says. I exactly, yeah, lots of eye rolls in the Stadensky household. You know, it's easy to exasperate. It's easy to exasperate. Um, but one of the things that a number of folks in our society are raising the alarm on is especially in more affluent areas, especially in areas like ours, um, parents were doing a lot more than exasperating our kids. We're, we're putting wins out there that are absolutely impossible. There's a, a great book that I've been recommending to all parents, um, especially if you're getting into more of the tween and teen years. It's called How to Raise an Adult. Um, at Emma's school, the teachers turned me on to this book. It's written by someone who does um, uh, admissions at Stanford, or used to do admissions at Stanford, and she started watching the trend lines, and it was just, it was, it's just crazy, um, the pressure that we're starting to put on kids. We're doing more than just exasperating them. Suburban parents don't simply exasperate their kids. In our exuberant quest for excellence, we too often define our wins by achievement in the right extracurriculars and extremely challenging academics so they can get into the exclusive schools, all for the purpose of landing executive positions as adults. And while this is all clearly expensive, the real cost of these misaligned wins is a lot, lot higher. Impossibly high expectations can feel excruciating and exhausting, and they can extinguish the very peace and joy that we want for our kids. We can hook, put so many wins out there that are, that are so impossible that instead of experiencing the joy and everything that we hope for, we can actually be pointing them the wrong way. You know, and it doesn't just hurt them. When we set up these wins that we set our kids up for failure in or we misalign and it ends up taking them a different direction, check out this. Uh, according to Parenting Magazine, parents experience depression at twice the rate of other adults. Think about that. Parents experience depression at twice the rate of the general adult population. Here's one of the things, that a quote from this book. It says, many parents are struggling to do their best within a system that has lost its mind. But we need to do more than throw up our hands. We cannot continue to just go with the flow, however powerful the current is. If we want our kids to turn out differently, we got to raise them differently. Well, what if we 
as believers, what if we defined the wins differently? Take this specific example of trying to get them into the elite college. What if instead of that, what if we look to wisdom like Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10, and instead of saying the goal is this particular college, what if the goal was more aligned with God's goals? Ephesians 2.10, we're his workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do, or as it says here, that we should walk in them. You know, what if we reminded ourselves and then went to pass that on to our kids that this is the win, right? College is a means to a greater end. The greater end is to honor God with your life. And what if we did a better job of saying the win is that and finding educational experiences that align with that rather than the ends and the means getting mixed up? Well, the book of Ephesians, it is filled with examples filled with examples of training and instruction in the Lord, what that looks like in practical terms. And can you imagine if our lives were aligned with winds like this from Ephesians? These are just some of them. Imagine if we were were pouring this into our, our, our young people, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine that? If you grew up with that understanding, that you were chosen. God chose you. How cool would that be? That in him we have redemption. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. In him we have an inheritance. By grace you've been saved through faith. Here's some more. What if we were able to instill in the next generation and train them that he himself is our peace? Does this world lend itself well to peace? No. What if we could help them anchor to that which does not change and they could be grounded with that peace? Through him we have access to the Father. Wouldn't that be great to point people that way? He is able to do abundantly more than all we ask of him. Actually, it says he's able to do far more abundantly. Let's just throw those on, right? Therefore, he says, I urge you, oh, this would be huge, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Wouldn't that be great? To challenge the next generation, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Here's some more practical stuff. Put away falsehood. Life is so much simpler when you're not trying to hide anything. Can I get an amen? Just put away falsehood. False images, you know, all the, the social media stuff, pumping yourself up to being this thing that you're not, whatever. What if we just talk, just being yourself, no lies, no falsehood. Oh, you could do, that's a win. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Do honest work with your own hands. Build others up with what you say. Here's more. Be imitators of God. Avoid even a hint of sexual immorality. There's a preacher I respect a lot, and he said, you know, does does sex outside of God's boundaries, does it really make life better, or does it make it more complicated? I'll go with the latter, right? Avoid foolish talk, coarse, crude joking. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. Some more examples. Make the most of your time. Don't get drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. What if this kind of training was our win? What if, what if this was our win? And what if, I mean, there's hundreds of us that call this church our home. What if we pooled our thoughts together and our resources together and had conversations? What's working? What's not working? What seems to be best practices here? What seems to be not? You know, getting those Rogers in other people's lives. What if we, if we were focusing on that first and foremost and other wins were lesser? Can you imagine 
the difference that that could make. Now, even as I go down that train of thought, I'm going to hit pause on my own train of thought because I don't want to give the impression that it's as simple as A plus B equals C in parenting. Can I get an amen to that? It is not as simple as A plus B equals C in parenting. And almost every family can, you've got the same parents born into the same kids. One goes this way, one goes this way. It's so much more complicated than that. So if you're right now, if the enemy, and he probably is, if the enemy's starting to heap on the shame and the guilt to say, oh yeah, if I would have just then, life is not like that, is it? And you need to be absolved of that guilt and that shame right now in Jesus' name because it's never that simple. In fact, where does Paul go right after this? In Ephesians 6, right after this, he steers towards the fact that there are forces at work in this world that are bigger than all of us. And his train of thought takes him right here. If you were reading along, just jump ahead to verse 12. He just comes out and says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And then he goes off on a, on a real important teaching about spiritual warfare. The prince of demons is known in the scriptures as the accuser, the accuser. And he loves to keep guilt and shame on parents, getting them to think, getting us to think. If we just told the right joke or asked in the right way, that everything would go as we planned. Now, even though there's no guarantees, I want to come back to my train of thought now, because even though there's no guarantees, the Bible points us to this training and instruction in the Lord and points us to something that, that undergirds it all, and that's what's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no more powerful thing to help transform a life than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The win is not just to point kids, in fact, not just, the win is not to point kids towards empty religion. The point, the big win, is to point them to a real relationship with their Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. So what I want to do for just a minute is step out of Ephesians, and I want to show you an example where the gospel, we see it in action. And that's in the book of Mark. It's just one of many places, verses 9 through 11, in this interaction between Jesus and His Heavenly Father. If you have your Bibles, take a look at this. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, his heavenly Father said, You're my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. May I present to you, there is no more deeper longing among people than to hear your heavenly father say and to know that deep inside to hear him say you're my beloved son you're my beloved daughter with you I am well pleased I believe in you I am here for you and we see this a lot of times manifest in this deep desire that we have for our earthly father's approval and a lot of us aren't walking around with a conscious awareness of that but it is there and i remember when we we when i was a youth director we would have these camps and these retreats and at every camp and at every retreat 
throughout decades, every camp, every retreat, when we would have these times where we'd encourage students to come forward and pray about whatever they wanted to pray about, always at the top of the list, it was a broken relationship with the Father. It was always one of the top things that people wanted to pray with. Regardless of gender, regardless of, of age, it almost always was one of the, the, the things that always came up because there is a deep, deep longing for our earthly father's love. I once heard a speaker say, hey, husbands, do you realize that you are the only legitimate source of romance for your spouse? Oh, that's right. Who else is going to be telling them, you're beautiful, I love you, crazy about you? This is true fathers for our kids. They call you daddy. They call you daddy. And who else is telling them, as your earthly father, I love you, I believe in you, I'm here for you. It's a powerful thing for a person to know that. And again, may I present to you that the reason that's a powerful thing is because there's even a deeper longing that we were created for. And that deeper longing is to have our creator God, our father in heaven, to, to, to know that that's how he feels about us, to be connected with him in that way, connected with the one who wants to share eternity with us, the one who created our earthly fathers and mothers, the one who designed all of that. We have this deep longing to hear that God say, I love you, I believe in you, I am here for you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is summarized pretty well in that passage we just read from Mark. When our Heavenly Father looks at us, if you're adopted as His son and daughter, if you're in the family of God, He looks at you and He says, I love you, I believe in you. This is what I see. I don't see the team that lost to the green team. You know, I don't see someone who didn't get into Stanford. I don't see you as a parent who feels like the worst parent ever. He sees you as His beloved child with whom He is well pleased. And He's so happy that He created you just the way He did. It might sound like N.T. Wright is the only commentator I look at. It's just his stuff is so good. He's the one that usually gets quoted. He says this about Mark. I just love it. Mark tells a story, says N.T. Wright, the one that we just read, in quite solemn language. He echoes the Old Testament. This is how it happened. He saw the heavens open. If we go back to the biblical roots of phrases like that, we realize what seeing the heavens open means. It doesn't mean Jesus saw a little door ajar miles up in heaven. Heaven in the Bible, means God's dimension behind ordinary reality. Remember that phrase, ordinary reality. It's more as though an invisible curtain right in front of us was suddenly pulled back. So instead of trees and flowers and buildings, or in Jesus' case, river, sandy desert, and crowds, we're now standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. A good deal of Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by this different reality even when we can't see it. This reality that there is a good father who's crazy about you. I normally don't do this, but I'm going to give some homework this week. Even those who are out of school, this is worth it. I want to encourage you to read today, today. I want to encourage you to read through Ephesians. And I'm tempted to say it won't take you that long because it won't. But why am I tempted to say that? When it's the word of God and we're believers, you know, those of us who are believers, why should I have to give that disclaimer? It won't take you long. Shouldn't it be more like, hey, come on, this is good, let's do it, even if it takes long. But it won't take long, so there you go. I want to encourage you to read it through tonight because it's 
an amazing letter. And especially the way it starts, what it tells us about who God is and what we can be in and through Christ, it's, it is, it's paradigm shifting. You'll read things like this, again, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. So he can look at us and legitimately say, I am well pleased because we're holy and blameless in his sight. We read that in love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Christ. We're going to read that when we hear the truth and believe in him, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit who serves as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And we're going to read this. This is huge. That while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, decisions that made us deserving of wrath, God being rich and mercy, even when we're dead, made us alive with Christ. Because we're constantly going to be in situations where we, we don't feel like extending grace. The more we recognize that grace, amazing grace, has been extended to us, isn't it a lot easier for us to extend grace to one another? So that's part one of your homework. And it'll help remind you of the kind of father that God is. So do part A first. And then I want to encourage you to look at part B. And part B, I put the link here in your um, notes. And it's a link to some videos they're going to sound incredibly boring because it's quantum physics. But it's really cool. It's really cool, especially when you put these two together. You put these things together. The links are going to take you to an online magazine called Relevant. And the link is going to take you to this article with embedded videos relating to quantum physics of all things. And here's the reason I want you to see these videos. They're really well done. They're fun. These videos take this huge concept and make it really accessible that the universe responds differently when people are watching. Electrons is the example they give you. Electrons respond differently when people are watching. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? And then the train of thought takes you to another video that makes the case that until reality is observed by an outside force, two realities exist. What does this have to do with anything? Our lives can be radically different. Not can be. Our lives are radically different when we recognize that we're being observed by a loving Father who believes in us and cares for us. And I never made this connection until this week when I was preparing this. The only race I ever won at Bethel was the race my dad came to. I never recognized that before. And then after the service, um, Tom Lochner came up, and he works with these kids that have special needs. And he was working with this autistic kid who could kind of run. And so he, he went to the public school, and the, the public school in their area had an awesome track team, right? So those awesome track team, that tra track team, their goal is to win. That is their, to win-win is their, their goal. But they allowed this kid to come and participate. And they worked all season, all season, all season to see if they could prepare him for a race. And they finally kind of got him to the spot where they could get him on the track and point him the right direction and have him start roughly when the rest of the people started. And so this kid, the gun goes off, and they kind of say, go now, now. And Tom said, I kind of had to push him out of the thing. And so he's, he's running, he's running, he's running. And then he notices his parents up in the stands. And what do you think this kid did? Stopped and waved. And what do you think the crowd of witnesses did? They went nuts. 
Because isn't that the win? Isn't that the win? And what if we started defining our ultimate wins in light of that, of helping people discover that there really is a God, that this is not about empty religion, that anything religious that God asks us to do, it's all about relationship, to help us align with the type of life that we're going to be living into eternity. Imagine how that reality of a child or our own reality could be different if we knew that a Heavenly Father was watching and He was not watching to watch us mess up. He was watching saying, I believe in you. I love you. I'm here for you. That's a game changer. Game changer. And aren't we all at our best when we know that there is a good Father, a Father who loves us unconditionally and His eyes are fixed upon us and He rejoices when we rejoice. He weeps when we weep. So I want to leave you with this question. How is the gospel defining your wins? Of all the things we could put as this is what's most important in life, how is the gospel shaping that? It's a game changer. Um, closing story here. I, um, I'm starting to prepare ahead. We have a series that's coming up this fall called Holy War which I just was reminded of. It sounds like there was an incident again last night. So we're going to have a series on holy war. I'm trying to read ahead for it. Christianity and Islam and all these. And one of the books I'm reading, this would be a good one for the guy you're talking with, um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. You heard of that one? I'm just getting started with it. Um, it's the author of the book was once a devoted Muslim, and his life changed when he started exploring the truth behind Christianity, the truth, the history behind um, uh, Islam. But it also changed as he began to pray a prayer like this because he believed in God as he knew him as Allah. But as he started to look at history itself and look at the facts, he began to re- recognize, I can't reconcile my, my faith the ones that could. So he cried out to God, and here's a portion of his, his prayer as recorded in his book. He said this, he said, God, I want your peace. Please have mercy on me and give me the peace of knowing you. I don't know who you are anymore, but I know that you are all that matters. You created this world. You give it meaning. And look at what he says specific to us in defining the winds. Either you define its purpose or it has what? None. Isn't that ultimately the truth? If there's not a God and, and there is no ultimate purpose, then you know, what's the point? But what if there is? What if there's a God who gives purpose? What if you really are his workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do? Let's pray as we close. Father, um, certainly this is, you know, this is not one of these messages that we're wrapping up with a neat little bow, but that's not how life is. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue this conversation with us, not just today, but as we go through life. What are your wins? Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and all of the families that they represent, all the kids in their neighborhoods. Lord, we pray that um, you would help us to live in such a way where we know that your eyes and your heart is directed towards us and that you desire us to have this life that is abundant, that you desire for us to spend eternity with you and each other and that everything that you do is directed to that end. Lord, help us also, our eyes to be open, that there's an enemy that comes to steal and kill and destroy and accuse. And he's really good at what he does. 
so that we don't get distracted by lesser wins, but that we could focus on what matters most. And now, Lord, I want to pray these words, and I pray that they would be received, this prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians over the Ephesians church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly more than all we ask or think, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.